Serious content alert here. This episode is called The Addicted Child. It's a heavy topic, but there's some help here for you and for your child or your stepchild too. Listen in. Welcome. I'm Tracy, the host of the Essential Stepmom Podcast, your source for information and inspiration about the womanly art of raising someone else's kids. There's a lot of material here for the dads too, because, well, because nobody talks to them about this stuff much, and it's about time that changed. There's nothing about making a stepfamily work that comes naturally. It happens as a result of effort and actual skills that you learn and practice, you know, like tennis or chess. My approach to all of this is a bit, well, unconventional. I like to live outside the box. And if that describes you too, I think we're gonna be friends. Let me hear from you. My super private mailbox is info at essentialstepmom.com and I'm always up for a chat. Does anybody ever think they're going to have a kid with a serious drug or alcohol problem? They don't, until they do. It creeps up on you slowly, but then it feels like it happened overnight, in an instant. I hope you'll listen to this, even if you can't imagine your delightful stepchild falling into this hole, because it's good to know where to look for help if it ever happens. Richard Capriola has been giving this kind of help for decades. And now that he's retired from active counseling, he literally wrote the book for parents on helping a teenager coping with serious addictions. His book is called The Addicted Child, and you can get it through any online bookseller, and his website is helptheaddictedchild.com. I'll put those links in the show notes to make it easy for you. Here he is. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, speak to me about uh, adolescent substance abuse. Well, so glad that you've done this because I think there are uh, parents, I'm sure, all over the world who are like grasping at straws trying to find anything that can help them to deal with this. And that is uh, the, the, the primary reason why I, I wrote the book. I, I wanted it to be a resource and a roadmap for families and for parents uh, uh, so that they don't feel so alone, they don't feel so trapped, and, um, and, and have information and resources that can really help them and their families get through this time. Uh, tell everybody your background here, because you, you know, you're, you're really an expert in this field. I have been in the mental health and substance abuse counseling uh, area for over two decades. Oh, wow. I started out in Illinois, which is where I'm originally from, and, and I was working for a mental health crisis center in central Illinois. It was a regional mental health center. And we would, um, we would uh, provide services to people who were sent to us from the emergency room in, in hospitals. Um, they had uh, a mental health or psychiatric issues. And what I noticed was a large percentage of them also had a substance abuse issue. 
So I went back to the University of Illinois and, and uh, obtained a master's degree in addictions counseling. I continued to work at the crisis center for a while, and then I was offered a job at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas. Uh, Menninger is one of the top 10 psychiatric hospitals in the country, and I was offered a position as an addictions counselor there. And I spent uh, over a decade working at Menninger, uh, providing addiction counseling uh, to both uh, adults and adolescents. And I retired from Menninger uh, a little over a year ago. And that's when I decided to write this book, this resource uh, for families, uh, because I had met so many parents and so many families whose, whose child was struggling with a mental health issue and an addictions issue that I wanted to uh, provide a resource for uh, for those families who maybe can't send their, their, their child to a place like Menninger and, are, and who are looking for resources and help. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's great. Um, and I've, I've read just a little of your book because I, I, you know, peeked in whatever you can see on, uh, on Google Books or Amazon okay. or wherever I was, but, um, <laughs> but, but it's great. And I've listened to you um, on a few other podcasts. I found you on someone else's podcast, and I'm just trying to remember where it was now. But I just listened to you today, talking to this two school counselors. Yes, yes. Um, and I was fascinated by some of the things that you pointed out in terms of the, like the origin of the problem and how it's easy to just say, oh, my, you know, my kid has fallen into drugs, but that there's so often something, something that they're covering up, uh, like a, an anxiety problem or a depression or a situation of that they can't handle, like being bullied or having been abused or mm -hmm. maybe failing in school and peer pressure, whatever it might be. That's, that's very true. And um, often when we look beyond the child's alcohol and drug use, and a lot of parents get trapped into just focusing on that. And, and that's understandable because oftentimes they're in the midst of a crisis. So they're focusing on the alcohol and the drug use. But once we look beyond that and we look underneath the surface, we often find an underlying mental health issue that is driving that child to use a substance. They're, they're medicating that underlying issue. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, most of the young men and women that I worked with who were smoking marijuana quite frequently, when I asked them to explain to me why they were smoking the marijuana, the number one answer that I received was it helps me with my anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, so it might be uh, something like anxiety, it might be depression, it, it might be a lot of different issues. But once we look beyond the alcohol and drug use, uh, we often find an underlying issue that also needs to be treated. And that's why it's important to get a comprehensive assessment, not just focusing on alcohol and drugs, but looking for other issues that might be contributing to the use. Yeah. Um, I think in my particular audience, uh, there's the kids are living in a tremendously stressful environment because the parents are divorced and uh, very often are, um, not co-parenting smoothly very often there's a great deal of tension between the households that as the child gets older it only becomes intensified so i think that's in and of itself uh, unfortunately often driving kids to um, 
kind of self-medicate. That's very true. Um, you know, when parents break up, uh, children often feel angry. Uh, sometimes they feel sad or depressed, and, and, and oftentimes they feel very anxious. Most of the time, they're able to adjust and, and do well. But those types of intense feelings of anger and sadness and anxiety can sometimes lead a child to look for a, a, a way to relieve those intense feelings, what I call these intolerable feelings that we have. Mm -hmm. And if they stumble on or find a substance like marijuana and they discover that it helps them with those feelings, then they're more likely to continue to, to use them. Um, we know, for example, that um, children um, of divorced parents are more likely to experiment with and regularly use marijuana. Um, I didn't know that. It doesn't surprise me, but I didn't know that. They're about, uh, especially if that divorce happens before the age 18, they're, they're, they're about twice as likely to use marijuana. Wow. There have been some there have been some other studies that showed that that parental separation is a major risk for teens using marijuana, nicotine, and alcohol, um, especially if the child was a preteen before the separation uh, uh, took place. Um, and I saw a, a study not too long ago that said that 21%, 21% of children cared for by a divorced or separated mother had lived previously with someone, usually another parent or a sibling who had a substance abuse problem. And that 21% rate is five times higher than the rate of children cared for by married birth parents. Oh, wow. So, so there, there, the, yeah. the important message here is that there is a risk associated with it. It doesn't mean that a child is destined to get into alcohol or drugs, but parents just need to be aware that there may be a higher vulnerability in those environmental situations. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've, I've observed in the families that I've worked with, um, not just divorced families, but in my, in my practice as a natural healthcare practitioner that um, kids are sometimes driven to, let's say, act out with certain kinds of behaviors as a, almost like a steam valve for other tensions in the family. Um, and that it can be easy for the parents to just focus themselves on the behavior of a child um, and not realize maybe that, that this, uh, that the behavior is has a functional value to the family as a whole. Does that make any sense to you? That makes a lot of sense because um, what happens is parents sort of focus on the immediate behavior, and 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 in that crisis moment, in that time of of, of anxiety or maybe anger, um, they're unable to see below the surface. They're they're unable to see that in, in most cases there's an underlying reason that's driving the driving the child's behavior, right. but they're so wrapped up in trying to control that behavior that they miss that underlying sign. And, and, and quite honestly, many times parents are not trained to be able to look at that. And that's where uh, having a professional like yourself or a, a therapist or a counselor can often work with them to help them discover those underlying issues. Yeah, that's great. 
um, I, in a minute, I'm going to talk about one way that you shared in the podcast with the, with the school counselors, uh, how to talk to a teen in a way that they can, you know, uh, get on board with. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted, before I go there, I just wanted to bring up one more, one more issue that could be very specific to my audience and um, not so much of a not so much of a big deal for families where the parents are still together, but kids often um, carry with them for many years the hope of bringing their parents back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, after they've divorced, ten years, fifteen years later, it's still a really strong unconscious drive of the child, and I think that sometimes. Uh, developing a really serious problem that requires uh, police intervention or hospitalization um, is sometimes the thing that actually brings both parents on board to work uh, together to solve the problem. And uh, I mean, it's awful to say, but the kid is kind of getting what they want by, by pushing something to the extreme so that their parents have to um, sort of sit at their bedside together, if you will, for lack of a better analogy. Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen that kind of? I haven't. I haven't seen that kind of of, of situation uh, develop. Um, uh, but but what you're describing, I think, is an attempt by the child, a desperate attempt by the child, to try and manipulate the family environment to get back to a dream environment yes. that they carry in their heads. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and parents who are working with that child, the step-parents, for example, that, that are working with that child, I think they need to um, understand that, that when they see that behavior, what's really going on. Yeah. Um, ultimately, it's going to come down to the type of relationship that the, the parents and the step parents have have tried to build over time. It's not going to happen immediately. Right. It's not going to happen right away. But I think the 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 more they're committed to working together as a team to help that child basically face reality, but also know that in this new realistic family that they're in, that there can be happiness there too, and that yeah. they can exist and, and and flourish within that environment. That doesn't happen naturally. It does take some work and it does take some commitment and and again many times these parents need the help of a professional to guide them along the way yeah I don't know if you've encountered I mean obviously in your work you're seeing people who already made it to the treatment facility but um, in my community there are a number of parents who are um, not only desperate about the situation that their child is in but they're desperate because the other parent, the the ex spouse, is somehow enabling this behavior. That one parent understands the problem and wants the child to get help, and in the other home, the the addiction gets enabled. Is that a situation that you've encountered? Um, I've encountered situations where uh, the parents who are <clears throat> no longer living together, you can just feel the tension in the room that's there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and it's very obvious that they have different 
different manners and different ways of handling situations. And that can be a problem because the child will gravitate to the more permissive environment. Mm. Um, and if you have a parent, for example, who uh, believes very strongly that their child shouldn't be smoking marijuana, and the other one may, may agree that their child shouldn't be smoking marijuana, but is more permissive, then it's going to be <clears throat> much more difficult to control that type of behavior. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's, uh, and that's, you know, that that's a layer outside of the part that you do, obviously, which is, yes. you know, once they can agree and bring their child forward to, to get some help, um, then everybody's on the same, on the same page. But mm -hmm. tell us, please, because I'm sure the listeners are anxious to know, what can you do besides just tell your kid, you shouldn't be doing this, because that goes nowhere. I think um, a lot of it gets down to developing a trusting relationship with the child. Um, when we ask adolescents what is it they fear most about talking to their parents about problems that they're having, the number one answer that we get from them is that they have a fear of being judged by their parents. Mm. Uh, adolescents feel as if they will be judged by their parents. I think that um, what what we all need to do um, is, is learn more effective and better listening skills. So a parent who is listening to their child, we're very good at hearing the words. Uh, we, can, we can hear the words. We're not so good at, uh, at, at hearing the feelings that are behind those words. And that's a skill that takes practice, it takes time, um, but it's a skill that every parent can learn so that when your child is talking to you about an issue, you not only hear their words, you also are able to hear their underlying feelings behind those words. Um, and, and, and that's a skill, like I say, that takes time, but if you can work on it and if you can develop it, you will, you will build a stronger relationship with your child because they will begin to feel as if you're not just hearing their words, you're understanding their feelings so that when they come to you with a problem or they discuss an issue, you're hearing not just the words, you're hearing the feelings behind the words. And that helps us all when that happens, feel validated, feel as if our feelings are important and understand that the person who's listening to us is not only hearing our words, but they're also hearing and understanding what we're feeling. And that's critically important. Oh, I agree with you. And I, I think, um, uh, I think it, as a general rule, I'm sure that this is overgeneralizing, but I think that, uh, you know, women tend to be more about feelings and, um, men sometimes find it harder to um, have a vocabulary for talking about feelings or to feel comfortable going there. And it's so important to do because like you said, if you don't make it part of your ongoing connection, then you run into a problem like this and you're trying to build these skills on the fly right in the crisis moment. That's, that's really hard to do. And, and, and I once had somebody ask me, um, you know, what can I do? My, my child's not a teenager yet. They, they're, they're, they're a preteen. What can I do to help my child stay away from alcohol and drugs? And the answer I gave was start to, to start to develop that trusting relationship yeah. with your child so that over time they begin to realize that they're being heard and they're being understood and that you trust them. That's so, I love that advice. Thank you for that. 
I know I've I've um, had a few discussions with the uh, people in my group about uh, how to how to get their kids and their stepkids to be more truthful, how to get them to stop telling lies or uh, whatever it might be. And, and I, it always comes down to creating an environment where it feels safe to tell the truth. Yes. Uh, yes. Because, you know, if they, if they get used to being punished when they've done something wrong, but they're truthful about it, um, you have to decide whether your the important value is truthfulness or, or something else. And that's, you really have to kind of take a step back and say, you know, if, if somebody says I was really mad at you and I broke something that was yours, it, you know, if you're going to get mad and say, how could you do that and fly off the handle, then it's not safe to tell a true thing. And kids have to feel safe to say, I broke a window somewhere. I failed my class. Um, I did drugs last night. I think I'm pregnant. You know, if you, if you want to be able to help them, they have to feel that they can come to you and say, say things without knowing that like they're going to get in trouble. And so their, their instinct is to try to hide it. Right. And, and, you know, uh, and, and kids learn that uh, by observing the way that their parents react. And, and like we discussed a, a while ago, uh, kids do fear being judged. Um, they also fear that if they admit to doing something wrong, that, that they're going to be punished. Um, and it's not that the punishment isn't appropriate. It may very well be appropriate. But going underneath that surface and looking beyond that, that, there is also a discussion that can be had as to why that behavior occurred. What was going on? Were you feeling angry? Were you feeling that somebody wasn't treating you right? Uh, it's just working with the child to get a better understanding of what their perspective of the event was, uh, as opposed to just very quickly going right to the behavior and then the punishment. Take some time to talk to the child, try to get their perspective, try to get see see what's going on in their mind and what they were feeling about it yeah I just someone in my group just shared something that I thought was really sweet and it was it was quite a young child but the child had done something that they shouldn't do and I can't remember what it was but the the parent had given them a little sheet with some questions to answer and the questions were what I did and how I felt when it was happening and what I'm going to do next time when I feel that way or something. And it, it was very sweet because the kid just answered the questions. And I, I love that they were able to sort of turn it into a, a nice teaching moment instead of just the typical, like, go to your room and think <laughs> about what you did. You know, um, kids need some help to unpack those things. No, that was that was excellent because um, having the child spend some time and think through those questions and write them down um, can often be the, the, the starting point for a very pr productive discussion. So that was an that was an excellent uh, exercise. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, say a few words about the neuroscience of drugs. Sure. Um, what we know about the neuroscience, uh, particularly as it, uh, it relates to adolescence, is um, 
we have an adolescent brain that is in the process of developing. Our brains don't get developed until we're around age 24 or 25. So in adolescence, it's important to remember that there is a brain that is in the process of developing. So when an adolescent starts to use substances like alcohol or marijuana or any, any, any illicit substance, the risk of doing more damage to that brain uh, becomes uh, more extensive because you're pushing drugs into a developing brain. Our brains are wired in a way that there is a portion of the brain um, that is what we call a reward pathway. And I discussed this in a chapter of the book on the neuroscience of, 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 of adolescent addiction. One part of the brain is the reward pathway. That's where drugs concentrate. And that's, that's the area where we get the intense feelings that we do of pleasure. The other part of the brain is the prefrontal cortex right behind the forehead. It's the last part of the brain to develop, but it's the important component to making rational decisions and weighing pros and cons. So in an adolescent brain or in an adult brain, often what happens with addiction is that the, the, the pre the, the reward pathway um, overrides the prefrontal cortex. Um, and the example that I use in the book is, let's say that I like donuts. Um, I've had a pleasurable experience in the past with donuts. So my brain, that reward pathway, recognizes how much I like donuts. And when I come under stress or anxiety or I have some uncomfortable feeling, that part of the brain tells me, well, Rick, go eat a dozen donuts. You know, you've learned in the past that eating donuts relieves that feeling. So go and eat a dozen donuts. The prefrontal cortex of the brain tells me, well, Rick, that's really not a good idea. You probably shouldn't eat a dozen donuts. You're going to get sick and you're going to gain weight. Now, if I'm not addicted to donuts, those two systems in the brain work together. And Rick ends up eating maybe one or two donuts in, instead of 12. <laughs> but in addiction, if I'm addicted to the donuts, that reward pathway overrides the prefrontal cortex. It's almost like that reward pathway is screaming, go and eat the donuts. You need them. You need them to get rid of the anxiety. And the, and the prefrontal cortex is whispering, no, you shouldn't do that. It's, right. it's not going to work out well for you. But in addiction, that, that reward pathway is screaming to eat a dozen donuts and Rick ends up eating a, uh, eating a dozen donuts. That's a very simplified way of trying to explain how uh, the brain is, is wired in addiction to really seek the substance. It says, seek and get the substance. It's almost in severe addiction, it's almost as if it's a matter of survival. Yeah, yeah. And um, what, I, what I understood you saying uh, as I was listening to you on another podcast is that teenagers are receptive to more, maybe more receptive to understanding what a substance is, the effect that it's having in their brain than they are about any kind of ethical or moralistic, uh, maybe it goes to what you were saying about feeling judged, you know, but that mm -hmm. somehow they're they're more receptive to the idea that their 
they can tell if they think about it, that their brain doesn't function as well on Mm -hmm. drugs as it does off. And that if you can connect them to some, some reason for wanting their, you know, their full cognitive capacity, that they can understand what it could mean to be experiencing changes in their basic brain function. Yes. Um, You know, I'm asked sometimes, well, how, how do you get through to these kids? How, how, do, how, do, you, how do you reach them? Um, and my response is, well, it's, it doesn't do me any good to, to tell them drugs are illegal. They've, they've heard it all over the place. It's not going to help me to tell them, you know, you know, if you continue to use drugs, you're not going to get a job. You're not going to go. They've heard all of that and they don't believe it anyway. But what I did find was helpful was the neuroscience of addiction. When I would talk to them about how these drugs work within their brain, and I would show them uh, a diagram of the brain and the various parts of the brain and what they're responsible for, they could see, well, this part of the brain is, is good for memory, this, good, this part's good for coordination. And then I would show them where marijuana attaches itself in the brain so they could visually see how marijuana might be affecting different aspects because these these young men and women who were smoking a lot of marijuana they had very high IQs some of them were in the superior range but when the testing came back i noticed that their short term memory was delayed it wasn't quite as good as they wanted it to be the processing speed of their brain was was much slower and they would admit to me that the that smoking marijuana sapped the motivation out of them so i would approach it from the standpoint of okay here's the neuroscience this is how drugs is affecting your your brain you've already admitted that it's had certain negative consequences where can we go from here and i would try to steer them in the direction of coming up with a reasonable amount of time to abstain using drugs and and usually they would buy into that if i were to tell them you can never use drugs again they would have stopped listening mm. but if i were to say to them you come up with a reasonable period of time to abstain from drugs and they would say three months six months whatever it was and I said okay after that period of time get yourself retested because I'm willing to bet that what you will see is that your short-term memory is better the processing speed of your brain is improved and your motivation is better and that you feel better and you can then make a decision as to whether you want to lose all those gains by going back and and, and smoking marijuana or if you just want to continue to improve and move forward and i was pretty well betting that they would make a decision to 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 stay away from it after they saw how it affected them and they saw how they improved once they abstained that's great and i i'm thinking even that when you're talking about processing speed and reflexes and things like that even even being better at video games could be a motivation for someone who's not thinking farther ahead than that. But yes. you know, getting better at skateboarding, you know, like you're, you know, when we're talking about your, your reflexes um, and your coordination um, and even things like following a conversation, following the plot of a movie that you're watching, mm-hmm. following the, the progress of a video game when your short-term memory is bad, um, you, you know, they might have an aha moment of realizing that they, 
you know, they were sort of aware, but hadn't really put their finger on what it was, but that they know they can't, they can't follow a story like they used to, or they can't follow a conversation the way they used to be able to. Yes, that's, that's good. That's very good. Because what it does is it, it brings it down to something that they can relate to, yeah. something that has meaning in their life. Um, and it can be as simple as, well, maybe this is going to help you play your video games a little bit better. Or, or maybe it's going to help you skateboard a little bit better. And, 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 and that's, those are good examples of how you can bring it down to something that is meaningful for them and achievable for them at the same time. Yeah, no, that that's really, I, I was very happy to hear you say that there, that your experience is that there is a way to get through to kids who are yes. having this kind of problem, because that's the main issue. It, do you have anything to add about, like, I imagine for a lot of kids, it's a really big part of their social life. And it's one thing to say that there's peer pressure involved in, you know, in doing drugs or drinking, but that it's really hard to continue to have a social life with those same people um, when you're the one who's decided to put, you know, put your drug habit on pause for three months or six months. That is so important. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. That is that is so very important because I've had um, teenagers who have said to me, well, you know, if you're asking me to give up marijuana, all my friends smoke marijuana, are you saying that I can't have them as friends? Because if that's what you're saying, I'm not going to have any friends left. Mm -hmm. And my response to, to them was, no, that's not what I'm telling you. What I'm telling you is there are two different kinds of friends. There's a group of friends that will respect your decision will honor your decision that you don't want to use marijuana. They may continue to smoke themselves, but they're going to respect your decision and they're going to do everything they can to help you maintain that decision. Those are the good friends you probably want to keep. Then there's another group of friends who quite honestly won't, won't care about your decision. They're going to try and entice you to relapse. They're going to try and entice you to continue smoking with them. Those are the friends you probably need to stay away from. So pick the friends that are going to be supportive of your decision, who are not going to criticize your decision, and who are going to support your decisions. May not be very many of them, but focus on them and, and stay away from the ones who, who really try to uh, entice you back into relapsing. That, I like that because that's, um, that's a nice way of putting it, you know, that, that, uh, that you can still, you're, you can have friends who can be okay um, using drugs without you, that they don't need to involve you in that. They want to be your friend no matter what. Yes, exactly. And the people who are your friends who who can't respect where you are in life and they need you to be where they are or they're not interested in you, that's all that's a sign that those those friends aren't the ones you want to work really hard to keep. Well, those are the friends that quite honestly are more interested in the drug than they are in you. Yeah. And you want to find the friends that are more interested in you than they are in the drug. Yeah, that's nice. That's a nice way of saying it. Well, Thank you so much for this. I think there was some really valuable stuff in there for parents listening who are kind of biting their fingernails about how to cope with this issue. So I'm definitely tell us the title of your book and where to get it. 
The title of the book is The Addicted Child, A Parent's Guide to Adolescent Substance Abuse. There is also a parent workbook that's available that, that I put together. It's a, it's a short little workbook, but I really wrote that to help parents go through the emotions and the feelings that they're having as they go through this with their child. Both the book and the workbook are available through Amazon. Um, you can also go to the book's website where you can read endorsements and reviews and articles. You can listen to other podcasts. Um, and you can order both the book and the workbook. The book's available in an electronic format, so you can download it and read it right away. Or if you prefer to have a paperback copy, you can order that too. Um, the, uh, the location for the website is www.helptheaddictedchild.com. www.helptheaddictedchild.com. Perfect. Well, I'm going to put that in the show notes too. Uh, so that they'll be able to click to it right from the notes of this podcast. And great. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for writing the book. And thank you for all the work that you're doing, because this is, uh, you're helping thousands of people, I think. So, well, very worthwhile. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your taking the time to, uh, to discuss this topic. And hopefully we've, uh, we've answered some questions and, and given out some, uh, some important information. And uh, I also appreciate your contributions because I think they were very helpful as well. Thank you. All right. We'll be in touch again. Okay. Thank you very much. I didn't really get to address the fact that the teens in my home and in your home might be suffering from anxiety that's really rooted in the dysfunction of their family. Our kids and stepkids are living in the middle of high conflict or even parental alienation, and it's all being normalized. So they don't even know how not okay it really is to have parents who either hate each other or fundamentally disagree on what's good for them. If you're a dad whose child says he or she doesn't want to visit you, and you're not an asshole, this is already a sign of the kind of inner turmoil that can drive a kid to need to escape from themselves. If you feel like you're watching a slow motion train wreck, please reach out for a phone call and let's talk about getting your connection with this child back on track. Let's map out a strategy together for retrieving your healthy, balanced family dynamic so your kids can allow themselves the space to like you again and accept more and more from you as time goes on. Go to bit.ly slash calltracy, all capitals, and grab any time for a free, private, no obligation phone call. I need to make sure you know that I'm not a therapist or a counselor. I'm a certified life coach specializing in helping dads learn to reconnect with their kids and be more effective parents in the aftermath of divorce. I just do one thing, but I do it really well. At least that's what my clients tell me. Richard Capriola, who is a legit addictions counselor, has kindly offered to return to this show at a future date to answer your personal questions. Like, here's what's going on. What the hell do I do? This is an amazing opportunity. And I'm going to suggest that you contact me by email at info at essentialstepmom.com with anything you'd like to weigh him to weigh in on. And we'll have another session where we'll address your specific concerns about your teen and substance abuse. 
I'll put my email in address in the show notes along with Richard's website. But once again, it's info at essentialstepmom.com. That's all for this episode. I know this music is pretty cheery considering what we just talked about, but I like to think of it as how hopeful you feel now that you know that there's an amazing book and a parent workbook and a website and an expert willing to just read your questions and answer them right on this podcast. Take advantage of that. Get your kids some help. Those of you who've listened all the way to the end, even though you don't have a kid with an addiction problem, thanks for that. And you don't have to wait until there's a three alarm crisis to get some help to make a better relationship with your kids. It's important. It's what helps immunize them against the pressure to overuse drugs, either with the wrong kind of friends or because the inner pressure just gets to be too much. I believe every kid deserves their undeletable dad and you get to give it to them. Request your free, private, no obligation call by visiting bit.ly slash calltracy, all caps, no E in Tracy. I'll put that in the show notes for you too. Once again, it's bit.ly slash calltracy. And I'll look forward to talking to you.